John 20, we're just going to pick up. I'm going to do like one of those uh, hearings in Washington hearings. And they give each person so much time to speak. And they'll say, I reserve the right to come back or whatever. I'm just going to reserve. I want to finish up John 20, just reading that. And then I'm going to reserve the right to come back to that. Maybe, Lord willing, next Sunday. I've got something else the Lord, where the Lord is leading me this morning. But in verse 24, we left off last week. After Jesus had just appeared on the first on the resurrection day, the first day of the week, and he had appeared uh, to Mary and, and the garden, he had appeared to the disciples on the world to Emmaus, and then in, as the evening, as the, as the sun set and, and the night fell, uh, the disciples were gathered together behind closed doors, and Jesus appears to them bodily. Luke would say that Jesus asked them if they had anything to eat. They gave him a piece of fish. He would show them his hands and his sides. And, and they would believe, and then he would, uh, he would uh, tell him, uh, verse 23, we pick up in verse 24 of John 20, but Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. Now, pastors love this, this text because it was a Sunday evening service that Thomas missed. And uh, pastors would love to say the importance of being in a Sunday evening service. Thomas missed, so for a week, the other disciples therefore said to Thomas, We've seen the Lord, but Thomas said to him, except I see in his hands the prints of the nails, put my finger in the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas was with them this time. Then came Jesus, the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be unto you. Then said he to Thomas, Thomas, reach hither your finger and behold my hands and reach hither your hand and thrust it into my side and be not faithless, but believing. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus said to Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. And then verse 30 and verse 31, John says, many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, and, and it's true, matter of fact, John would close the, the, his account out at the end of the next chapter and said that if, if, if everything that Jesus done, if all his miracles and works that he'd done were written, he was convinced that the world couldn't hold them. But John, uh, John, John picked some specific miracles under the direction of the Holy Spirit that he presented in his gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke presented uh, and shares with us many, many other miracles. But John had a purpose. He, the Holy Spirit directed him to pick the specific ones to share with us. And verse 31 tells us that he wrote these so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That he is, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised one, that he is the only begotten Son of God. And that not only have a head knowledge of that, but by believing in that, that we might have life through his name. The reason John wrote this is so that people would see Jesus Christ as God's only begotten son and they would come to faith, a saving faith in him as their Lord and Savior, that they would become Christians. And that's our commission, that's our command is to go and make disciples, make followers of Christ wherever we go. But today when we invite someone to, to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, when we invite someone to, to become a follower of the cross of Christ, we're inviting them into a dangerous world. I appreciate Sarah coming. She, I text her. She texted me yesterday and she said, Pastor, I will come and, and share this. But she said, you pray that I won't cry. And I text back and I said, Sarah, I love you. 
But I will not pray that. And you'll understand why. When I read this, just know that I'm reading it to myself. He muttered it, really, barely audible, but I knew it meant something to him. We were setting out overused, overstuffed purple chairs, eight per table, 33 tables. We expected around 250 people, but his number was 21. 21 beheaded, 21 human beings dead. I gripped the slick silver aluminum frame of a chair. Did he just say that? 21 people martyred along the Libyan shoreline? He did. And he never stopped moving chairs. He just kept right on going. A frequent visitor to the Middle East, it's not the first time he's received this type of news. And it won't be the last. And I'm guessing he kept right on moving because most people don't care that much about some dead Christians across the ocean. It's not our father, not our husband, not our brother. It's not the life we lead here, a fear of martyrdom. Not at all our life. Even the word martyr is archaic and far removed from our velour-covered church pews and sprawling church campuses complete with family life centers, industrial kitchens, and enough coffee pots to caffeinate the state of Texas. We carried on with our evening. People would be arriving. We were having a Valentine's cake auction fundraiser. We raised money every year for the not-for-profit camp that my husband and I helped direct. Every July, our church campus becomes a hub of 450 happy campers and all the staff to manage them. It costs a lot to make that happen. Fundraisers are important to us, and this one raises more than any other fundraiser we do. The people were arriving, ladies lovely in their ruby red and powder pink, and men peacock proud of their wives' culinary confections and hungry for cake. They'd open their wallets and their mouths tonight. The cakes were towers of chocolate ganache, truffles, buttercream, red velvet, raspberries, and seductive designs. Some would go for over $800 a pop. And children, many from broken and godless homes, would go to a free camp where Jesus' love is poured out liberally. It's a good thing. But I couldn't shake the 21. I just couldn't let them go. That they were beheaded may have added to it. How can anyone in today's day and age take a blade and bereave a wife, a daughter, a mother. Take a sword and with a single slice swallow the life of another human being? What evil is this? What rage and anger and hardness can possibly give the hand the will to wield the sword in this brutal and barbaric way? I had that chest-tightening, air-swallowing feeling. Were they married? Were they afraid? Did it hurt? What about their families? Did they leave babies and sons? What if that was my husband? What if that was my boys? But there we all were, 250 of us, ready to celebrate and eat cake. And I keep thinking of that phrase, let them eat cake. 
Could I be so callous as to forget on this night while we lick forks and fingers and swallow the sweet that there are 21 families drinking the bitter cup? And if you want the truth, and if I have the guts to be honest, I am that callous. And maybe so are you. Because those 21, the Egyptian Christians that got a bit of press, they're just a drop in the bucket. The truth of the matter is that somewhere around the world, more deaths occurred the very next day with no fanfare, no outrage, no public outcry, no retaliatory missile strikes. In fact, the average number of martyrs for their faith in a month is 322. That's about 10 lives a day. It's close to one life per two and a half hours between my oatmeal and my lunch salad. Between early service and late service, a person dies. And churches and properties are burned, 214 a month. And over 750 acts of violence, rape, beatings, forced marriages are committed every single month. Did I cry for the 21? I did. For their wives, for their daughters, and for their murderers, too. But what of the others? What of the one who was raped this morning, though I don't know her name and I haven't seen her face? Have I cried for her? I live in a luxurious state of denial, with just enough glimpses into reality to justify my return to denial. I do. I live in a world where I'll write a check or click on a link and contribute and then I'll go watch a movie on Netflix and make plans for soccer practice and youth retreats because I can watch Netflix, because my son can play soccer, because our youth can have a retreat freely. But I can forget too, so easily, what I've seen. And we get in a tizzy, don't we? We all cry down with ISIS and down with the Muslims and down with President Obama and the whole lot of them. Because if we can just get rid of the newest extremist group and get the right president in power, then surely all will be well, right? But there was the white man. And history proves he abused natives and Africans. And there was Hitler. And history proves his atrocities. And there was Osama bin Laden. And we've lived through his evil. And now there's ISIS. Because goodness gracious fellow followers of Christ, we are not wrestling against ISIS or Hitler or even ourselves. We are wrestling against principalities and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And do we even remotely understand the gravity of that? And if you want me to be frank, and I don't really know any other way, we're not wrestling our... If you want me to be frank, our tizzies don't amount to much more than a virtual distraction in the form of blogs and Facebook posts. And after we've raged a little while, we go and have more cake. And meanwhile, the death toll rises and the destruction continues. Because evil comes from within, like it or not. Mark 7 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, theft, and murder. And forgive me for offending, but I can become so distracted by some slip-up the president had at a prayer breakfast that I forget there's only one cure for evil, and it isn't the president that holds that cure. We hold it. 
Matthew says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. That's us, you and me, not the president, not the Congress, not military. And don't hate me. Of course we fight at the congressional level. Of course we defend the persecuted. Of course we challenge the president to speak constructively and wisely. Of course we stand. The Bible instructs us to do so. In Psalms 82 it says, Stand up for those who are weak, for those whose fathers have died. See to it that those who are poor and those who are beaten down are treated fairly. But Romans 12 reminds us, Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Because the very evil that takes a blade to the throat of an innocent man can overcome us, believers. It can. And it has the rage, the backbiting, the disrespect of our president, the careless calls of Christians to annihilate every one of them. This, if you'll allow me to say it, is just not overcoming evil with good. And somehow, we have to reconcile all of Scripture. We don't get to pick the parts that we obey. So we have to stand up with good. And if we want to be brutally honest, all this raging that we've been doing, it negates us as valid contributors in the eyes of mankind because we aren't offering solutions. We're only casting stones. So let's just do a little reasoning together. I'm not foolish enough to think that how we stand up with good will look the same for all of us. But I can tell you how it will look for me. Just an average housewife who works from home, homeschools her boys, and helps her husband direct a camp and youth. For me, it looks like this. I'm going. First to my boys, and then to our church, and then to our community. And making disciples, because the call is still the same. Making disciples and teaching them to obey God. Just one or two or three at a time, disciples, sharing Christ, sharing his love, opening my home to any teen that wants to drop in, to any young adult that wants to talk, or any peer who needs help in their walk as a disciple. We'll do coffee and we'll talk about Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Because disciples, in their biblical sense, are people who follow a specific teacher, in our case, Christ. They follow his course, they follow his teaching, they follow his ways, and they mimic him in all that he does. So disciples will be about God's business because Christ said he was about his father's business. And disciples will love because Jesus loved to the point of death. Matthew 10 says disciples will be okay with losing their lives for Christ's sake because in the end they know they will gain it. Hebrews 12 says, Disciples will be willing to resist to the point of bloodshed and not grow weary in their souls and give up because they will think of Christ who endured such opposition against himself by sinners. And Matthew 6 says, Disciples will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because that's what Jesus did. And isn't that really the hardest? To seek first the kingdom of God before everything that I want? Before my comfort and my goals, my hopes, my dreams, my ambitions, before everything else? John Piper in Don't Waste Your Life said, I'm wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. 
And before you know it, I'm calling luxuries needs and using my money just the way unbelievers do. And I begin to forget the war. I don't think much about people perishing. Missions and unreached people drop out of my mind. I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do and not what God can do. And a disciple fights against that temptation at all cost. A church leader from China was in prison for 23 years, and he said this. He says, I was pushed into a cell, but you have to push yourself into one. You have no time to know God. You need to build yourself a cell so you can do for yourself what persecution did for me. Simplify your life and know God. A disciple forces himself into that cell so that he lives and breathes the kingdom of God. God helped me to stay in that place despite my tendency to wander to more comfortable accommodations. In the kingdom of God, it's filled with broken people who have been made whole by the unconditional, unfailing, unwavering, uncompromising, and unexplainable love of Jesus Christ. And a disciple knows that the cure for evil is the love of Jesus Christ. A disciple will go and make more disciples. In standing up for the persecuted, in raising a flag for the sex trafficked, in seeking justice for orphans, in lobbying the government for biblical legislation, we must not lose sight of the original call for believers, go and make disciples. That may mean some of us land in Washington, and some of us land in Libya, and some land at a cake auction, raising money to fill a camp with the precious souls of potential disciples, our children. It will always mean, says Ephesians, that we do not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. We'll respect life, even of the men who practice evil. And we'll forgive because Christ forgave his murderers. And we'll respect authority, even of a president whose political party we may or may not align ourselves with. And we'll not waste time name-calling and nitpicking. We'll just go wherever we are called and make disciples. And maybe along the way, it will be all right if we have a decadent slice of cake because God himself instructed us to make the most of every opportunity. There may come a day when those of us in North America will no longer have the freedom to host a cake auction for a Christian cause. While we can, we will. And in so doing, we'll honor the sacrifice those 21 made. We'll honor the sacrifice of the thousands martyred each year. Because if we're making disciples, we're seeking the very thing for which they gave their lives. Jackie called me Tuesday morning. She says, Pastor, look at this, look at this. She said, do you want to know the accusation that the ISIS jihadists made of the men before they beheaded them? 
accusation were they were people of the cross. Wow. People of the cross. Wouldn't it be great to be known as people of the cross? See, Jesus invited us to take up our cross and follow him. I was overwhelmed first service. I want to read the names of these men. As I started reading, I was completely overwhelmed when the church stood in silent honor of these men and of their courage. Stand with me. Hani Abdel Masab, Yusuf Shulri, Tuardos Yusuf, Magid Suleiman Shahada, Malad Makin Zaki, Banub Ayad Ataya, Corollas Shulri Boswe, Bishop Estefanus Kamal, Malik Ibrahim Sindwi, Giris Malad Sinwi, Mina Fazad Azi, Samuel Alham Wilson, Samuel Estefanus Kamal, Izat Bishri Nasif, Lokwat Nagata Anis, Munir Gabir Ali, Islam Badir Samir, Malik Verlag Abram, Samuel Salah, Giris Samir Magli, and an unnamed worker. As you stand, Anis, would you come? Anis is going to lead us in prayer for these families and for these men. And Anis, you have a very current word from Egypt for us. Can you share that? Thank you. On the screen, there was one line that said, May their sacrifice lead our hearts to repentance. And when Pastor Jerry asked me if I would pray this morning, I remembered a morning, 9-11-2001, as I watched the Twin Towers implode, and the cameras then panned to the streets of Baghdad where they were passing out candy, and they were celebrating, and they were cheering over the fact that that um, Islam had attacked the great Satan and wounded us. and. Yes, yes, we as Christian infidels were being killed and my heart just began to fill with rage and anger and hatred. I could feel hatred knocking on my heart's door. And the Holy Spirit said to me very clearly that morning, if you let hate into your heart, they will have taken down much more than the Twin Towers. We cannot let anger, resentment, hatred, and bitterness enter our hearts or our prayers will not be effectual for these people. And we will not be fit vessels for the honor and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So before we pray this morning, I just exhort you, examine your heart. The Word of God tells us that we should love those who persecute us and do all manner of evil against us. And we cannot do that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit of the living God. And we will not do it if we're not willing to lay aside, to die to our flesh, and allow the the power of God's Spirit to move in us.
Would you just take a minute to please examine your heart? This morning, um, just before we left to come to church, we received a letter from Egypt. Our friends there, that um, in the church there, where the team that Jim works and travels with, we received this letter, and Pastor said I could share parts of it with you, and we will get around to praying. Um, he says, We were deeply saddened by the news as a nation, and thanks to media, most people have watched the brutality with which the murderers have cold bloodedly committed their crime. This has shaken everyone to the core. Doing this under the name of Islam is causing many people to question their belief or to defend it even more. In both cases, we pray that all eyes will be open to see Jesus. Mm. Yet even among believers and nominal Christians, people are asking themselves, Do I have what it takes to stand fearlessly in the face of death, remaining faithful to the end without denying my Lord? Um, this, these are the words of the brother and the mother of one of the men who was killed in that seashore scene. We are happy, one of the victim's brothers said, till his last breath they were crying, Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't afraid of a knife or a sword. They haven't denied their faith. We're grieved because we will miss him, but our hearts were happy. He's in heaven, and that's why we joy. He then added that those people who came back from Libya relayed this. They chose them by name. Those whose names showed that they were not Christians were freed. I guess you noticed many of the names had Abraham and other Joseph and other biblical names. Then the victim's mother said this, May the Lord forgive the murderers for what they have done. May the Lord lead them unto himself and enlighten their hearts. Now those are people who are walking in the victory of the almighty and amazing grace of God. And we need to apply that same grace rather than hatred and revenge and resentment. Controversies have been, this is back with to what pa, uh, Pastor Fias says, controversies have been rising politically. Should the army intervene or not? Do Egyptians have the right to defend themselves or not? May, many are proud of the strikes um, on ISIS targets in Libya. The international community is taking various stances, even among the Arab governments. We see diverse opinions, and some are stepping back. This is not our war We do not war with humans, but with evil principalities. This is also not where we put our trust, although we pray for wisdom for our leaders. For the Lord, um, this is a quote from Psalms 33, 16. The Lord looks from heaven. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A horse is a false hope for victory. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death. Let's pray for these families, and then we'll, I'll close with Pastor Fiaz's um, prayer in the last part of his letter. 
Almighty God, whose grace is so amazingly sufficient. God, we are humbled this morning to hear that a brother, that a mother can walk in more victory than we do from our place of ease and comfort. Lord, we humble ourselves and ask you to forgive us. And We come now, Father, and we lift up these families to you, the families of these 21, the other brothers and fathers and mothers and sisters. God, we thank you for the sufficiency of your grace, and I pray, Lord, that you would enable each and every one of them to reach up and grab hold of that extra measure of grace that you do extend to us in these times of sorrow and great grief. And for those many others that we're not focused on today, Lord, we pray that you would enable those families to also reach up and grab hold of your amazing grace. And Lord, we pray that their faith would not not fail or waver, that they would not get in fear, but they would stand boldly and proclaim the love and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Fias completed his letter with this, and this is his prayer, and we'll join with him. We pray for the families of the victims, that the Lord would comfort their hearts. We pray for all those who are in distress and tribulation because of the bloodthirsty one who desires that all men perish, whether in Libya, Iraq, Syria, Egypt, and everywhere. We pray above all that we remain faithful to the end and that we will be followers of the Lamb wherever he goes, and that we will love him even unto death. Jesus told us, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. He keeps our soul, and we want to love him and fear his name alone. Pray that many people will receive the unshakable kingdom as they are now shaken on every side. Pray that there will be a testimony for Jesus in our land in these days and that the people who know their God will bring many to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being our friends and partners. Amen. I want to share just a couple of three things about that. But before I do, I want to I would encourage if you can if you can get a copy of this book, you may want to do that. It's by Irwin Lutzer. Uh, I think he's pastor of Moody Church. He was at one time. It's called "When a Nation Forgets God: Seven Lessons We Must Learn from Nazi Germany." It is a powerful, powerful reading. But I want to share. from this because of Hitler's ascension to power in in Germany. It's quite amazing. Um, and his the, the way that the church was lulled into deception and slept until it was too late. And Hitler's demonic shrewdness 
And it was, uh, it was really a matter of, of semantics and a matter of vocabulary and uh, changing the wording of, of things. And atrocities were, 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 call, were called some of the best sounding names. They never sounded like what they were. And I see that same thing. I see so many similarities. Until at one time, after a lot of, uh, a lot of groundwork had been laid, at one time, then the churches in, in Germany were asked to, to go along and, and sign an agreement. And at that time, there were still 800 pastors that refused to sign. At one time, there were 800 pastors in Germany that were arrested. But by that time, Hitler had won the hearts and the minds of the populace and so convinced them that these, uh, that these pastors were the danger and it was not him. He was there in the economy. He had rebuilt the economy and uh, he had, it was 100% employment and, and Germany was again feeling strong. One of the pastors, Nymolder, has this and I'm just going to, Lutzer said, Nymolder has a word for us who live in America. Of course, he was thinking of his own church and the people of Germany when he spoke these words, but they are for us as well. Early in 1934, he mounted the pulpit of his church in Berlin, in the Berlin suburb of Dahlem, and prophetically declared God's purpose in the trials that faced German church. And I'm quoting. We have all of us, the whole church and the whole community, we've been thrown into the tempter's sieve, and he is shaking, and the wind is blowing. And it must now become manifest whether we are wheat or chaff. Verily a time of sifting has come upon us, and even the most indolent and peaceful person among us must see that the calm of a meditative Christianity is at an end. It's now springtime for the hopeful and expectant Christian church. It's testing time, and God has given Satan a free hand so he may shake us up and so that it may be seen what manner of men we are. Satan swings his sieve, and Christianity is thrown hither and thither. And he who is not ready to suffer, he who called himself a Christian only because he thereby hoped to gain something good for his race and his nation, is blown away like chaff by the wind of time. Wow. Strong words. What do we do? A couple of three quick things. James in James chapter 2 don't know how to go there, but the first, first 20 verses, matter of fact, almost most of the chapter, but particularly we get down to verse 12 and verse 20. And James tells us, he's talking about having faith and works. And James says, if you see your brother in need, if you see your brother hungry and you don't give him something to eat, if you see him freezing and you don't give him clothing to wear, if you see him in jail and you don't go visit him, he said, where's your faith? It's dead. It's dead. We need to do that which we can do. I, I, I appreciate your giving to the to the going to the refugee to the to refugee camps, the giving to the to to Ukraine. Matthew chapter twenty five, verse thirty one through forty six, tells a story of of Jesus sharing a parable of of a time of judgment when we'll appear before God and when God will say to some people, "Hey, I was hungry and you 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 fed me. I was I was destitute. You you took care of me. I was cold or naked and you clothed me. I was in jail and you came and visited me." And they said, "Lord, when do we do that?" He said, "You did that when you did it to the least of these." And likewise, he'll say to those on his left hand, "I was hungry, you didn't give me anything to eat." I was thirsty and didn't even get a drink of water. I was, I was cold. I was destitute. I needed clothing. You didn't clothe me. I was in jail. You didn't even come and visit me. And they'll say to him, Lord, we, we didn't see you. If we'd seen you hungry, we'd give you something to eat. 
When did we see you like that? And he said to him, Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. God hates hands that shed innocent blood. Proverbs 6, 17. He hates hands that shed innocent blood. Proverbs 31, 8 was a verse that Operation Rescue is a verse that called uh, those who, who fought the, the, the Holocaust of abortion in our country. It says, open your mouth for the dumb and the cause of all such as are appointed to destruction. So we're to speak up. We are to speak up to anyone, to everyone. Especially, Sarah shared, uh, that we know our hope is in the Lord. But we're called, we're to speak up to especially those men and women, our representatives, our, our, our elected officials. And, and speak up for godly, uh, godly laws, for godly rules. Back in the 60s, Francis Schaeffer authored a series called How Should We Then Live? And Francis Schaeffer said in the, in the 60s, he said, if we aren't careful, we'll wake up one day and the America that which we've known is no longer exists. Huh? Wow. How prophetic those words were. Listen to words, the words of Proverbs 29.2. Let us know our responsibility prophetically or politically. It says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked beareth rule, people mourn. There's a lot of mourning going on today. There's a lot of mourning. It grieves me. I'm so sick and tired of the political correctness that people want to just say that every religion's okay. I'm grieved as those who want to say that Islam is a, is a religion of peace. That is not true. Just a, just a cursory look at the Quran and the commands given in the Quran. Just a, just a, just a shallow look at the man Muhammad and the life that he lived historically should give us pause to, to, to concern. There are a lot of good people that are deceived by all kinds of religions of the world. But we do people no good when we tell them that what they're believing is okay. We do people no good when we tell them it's okay just to say they're a Christian. Doesn't mean that they're, doesn't mean that they're Christ-like. Boy, I love that term. Are we people of the cross? Wow. It's easy to say, I'm a Christian, but am I, am I a follower of the cross? The cross is kind of a one-way street. We need to be informed. We need to be involved. And we need to speak up. We also need to pray. Prayer is the greatest work there is. Psalm 122.6 says that we're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, I'll tell you, Jerusalem is a very... As a country is very, uh, uh, I'd say poly, almost polytheistic. There is, there, is, there is so many religions and things. But for some reason, it still boggles me why God chose Jerusalem. But you know what boggles me more is why God chose Jerry. <laughs> yeah, he, he, he loves, to, he chose us. He chose Jerusalem. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. It's, uh, it bothers me. It's a, it's a, it, I'm, I'm embarrassed by the, by the slap, back of the hand slap to Benjamin Netanyahu by our administration. And by, by our congressional leaders, uh, the leader of Israel, no matter what his politics, should be welcomed warmly by the leaders in our nation. 
Oh, man. You know, we need to pray. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses, the first four verses there encourage us that we're to pray for our authorities, those in rule over us. We're to pray for them. It's not, a, it's not, a, it's not an option. We've got to do that. We need to do that. We need to be praying for them. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us that we need to pray all the time. Pray without ceasing. We pray for the families of these who are slain. We pray for their children of those who are slain. We pray for those who are being persecuted today. And I don't know if you're like I am. I, I found myself crying a lot lately. Praying for the kids, praying for the children. We see this, but if you follow the news at all much, and I know most of the, most of the children are in children's church this morning, then you're aware of what the demonic influences have done to the children in these areas of the Christian children. The crucifying, the beheading, the burning alive, the, the un, unmentionable atrocities that's happened to the kids. And I cry. And I think it could be my grandchildren, your grandchildren. But they're kids just like ours. They're people just like ours. Proverbs says we need to open our mouth. We need to speak up. We need to be informed. We need to stand up. We need to pray up. Are you praying for the persecuted? And then, yes, finally, Sarah mentioned and Anise both too, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 44, we need to be praying for the jihadists. We need to be praying by those who, those, there are Saul's among them. There are Saul's among them. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. You know, we were, Sarah was talking about overcoming good with evil Making disciples, one person at a time, overcoming evil with good, yeah. I think that sounds, that sounds more biblical. <laughs> overcoming evil with good. So, what's that look like? I mean, I mean we get so frustrated. And, and someone after first service said, Jerry, I, 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 I'm just, and with tears in her eyes, and said, I'm just overwhelmed, but are you saying then that, that as a nation we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't involve our military? You know what, I'm not saying that. I... I uh, I admire, you've heard the reports of some of the ex-military guys who are fighting with the Kurds now up north, protecting their country. And I admire them for that. And uh, I wouldn't be much good there probably, but, uh, but, but God help us. How, how can you see what they're doing to, to people and have the ability to go in and to stop some of that and not do that? I don't understand that part. That bothers me to no end. But I don't want us to be so concerned about what we can't what we have no control over that we don't do what we do have control over okay and we do have the ability to just agree with the holy spirit of god when he begins troubling our hearts and stirring our hearts what does it look like to overcome evil with good well i think we can get real practical sarah got really down she she got as jackie would say she got in her grill okay she got up in her in her in her faces with that let me give you an example this morning, and this is, this is puny, but it's just how, it just, just shows me how, if we look, we can find it everyday practical ways. We were, we were running a little late this morning, we got, Barbara and I got up early, earlier than normal, really did, and she knows that, she's, she's been such an amazing woman, she always has been, but boy, I've appreciated her more lately, and we were up early, getting ready, and we just, best we could do, uh, 
We just were kind of running late. And we get in the car, and she says, Honey, I, I don't even want to say this. I'm sorry. But she said, I've left my keys for the, for the library in the house. I know right where they are. And I said, I, I, don't, I don't mind. I'll go get them. Now, let me tell you, the old jury, and, and he's not, he still shows up. He's crucified, but he keeps trying to crawl off the cross. Okay? <laughs> the old jury would have been huffing and puffing and, and real, just fussing about how late we were going to be. But God's had me too much this week here. And I said, honey, I'll be glad to. You know, if we're late, they can start without us. I, it's, it's far more important for me to honor my wife than to show up at, at church on time and to dishonor. What does it mean to be people of the cross? What does it mean to be loving and kind? What does it mean to be forgiven to each other? What does it mean to look at each other and to think the best and to hope the best and to pray for the best? Now I know. In conclusion, some of you are thinking what, uh, what I'm calling for is pretty radical. Yeah. And I know there's, there's people who say, hey, I come to church to hear a good message and to go home feeling good. I pray that we come to church to hear from God. And go home changed. Because God's word is alive. Ephesians 5, 1 through 21 is powerful. Especially verse 15 and verse 16 tells us that we're to be wise, understanding, and redeeming the time. Taking advantage of the time that we have today, right now. If you're gonna if you're gonna teach a Sunday school class, teach it now. If you're gonna lead a small group, lead it now. If you're gonna pray for the persecuted, pray now. If you're gonna if you're gonna share the gospel with your family, share it now. Colossians four, first six verses also reminds us again that we are to be wise, understanding, and redeeming the time. After first service, a person came up to me and said, I need to ask forgiveness. I've been so busy doing the things that I needed to get done for, for me that a lot of times the Holy Spirit would speak to me about doing this or doing that when something was asked, who wants to do this or anybody could do that. And I, wanted to, I, I fully intended to do that, but when I got everything else done. We need to be informed. We need to be involved. We need to speak up. We need to pray up. And we need to look up. Scripture tells us when we see these things happening all around us, look up, for our redemption draws nigh. Now, I want to tell you, he does, and as Christians, we're longing and looking and praying, come Lord Jesus. For you and me, you know, we say, man, it looks good now. We're not having to live through this type of persecution yet that some of these countries have, but they're living it out. And, I, and sometimes I wonder, like John in the book of Revelation, when he said, Lord, the, the voices of the martyrs cry out from under the altar. How long? How long, Lord? How long are you, you going to let it look like the world seem like they're winning? Can't help but think that the Lord says, just as long as it takes for that last one to make up my bride's complete. And then I'll come. It may be one of the kids in camp. Maybe one of the kids in soccer practice this week. It may be 
one of the jihadists that's just took it after the throat of someone and he thought he was doing God's, God's business and Jesus reveals himself to him. And he says, God, forgive me. Let's be doing what we can, when we can. And knowing that everything we do doesn't amount to anything unless he does it. Would you stand with me?